Support for Class Dismissed comes from School Status. School Status helps educators at every level take control of student data for increased outcomes and meaningful stakeholder engagement. Find out more at schoolstatus.com. You are listening to Class Dismissed, episode 195, and I'm your host, Nick Ortigo. A surprising amount of districts practice just a four-day school week, but at what cost? A researcher lets us know. And will schools continue to offer virtual learning next year? Christina tells us why many probably will, whether they want to or not. Dismissed is the podcast that inspires educators through story. Each week, we cover some of the hottest topics and news in the world of education. Plus, we hear from a guest with a bright idea for education that you can apply in your community. This week, a lesson for anyone in a leadership role. Our guest gives us tips on how to effectively and gracefully handle conflict. Everybody, Nick Ortigo here, and I'm joined by friend, director of curriculum, and co-host Christina Pollard. <laughs> Christina, how are you doing? How's that sound? I am fantastic. You caught me off guard. <laughs> that, do I have that right? Director of curriculum, right? Director of curriculum and instruction. And instruction. Okay, I'm gonna have to add that for next week. I will. I will correct the record. Um, so it's <laughs> June. Are things slowing down for you at all yet? Oh, no way. There's no slowdown. Uh, we're wrapping up a year. We're transitioning. Um, you know, principals into their new positions. I'm trying to transition into my position and believe it or not, July will be here in a blink and it always goes by in 24 hours. <laughs> right. I know. So uh, are you expecting, when can you say like, I'm leaving the principalship behind? I mean, are we still weeks away from that happening? Um, well, you know, your your contract year is run July 1 to June 30th. So I, you know, have pretty much wrapped up many of the things that I need to do. We are in summer school, so I'm the supervising principal for that. I have handed off a number of things to the incoming principal. Um, this week, I think I'm going to try to figure out how I can focus on um, some of the tasks under my new title and doing some things with my new team members before going on vacation. But I will say effective July 1, hey, that thing is rolling and time will not stop. If I was to pull an old episode, I think it was like either February, you were talking about going on a vacation. And I think that's the last time, (laughs) the closest you've come. It's the same vacation that you're about to take. So Yes, it's the same vacation. Um, I'm a member of Delta Sigma Theta Sorority Incorporated and my specific line um, from Delta Pi chapter at Jackson State University. We celebrated our 25th (laughs) anniversary and um, we scheduled a trip a couple of years ago when we were all going to Jamaica together and we were so excited and COVID hit. Uh And so we had to take a vote whether we were going to do vouchers and plan something later in the future or push it back um, to just about the exact same days uh, a year later. And it is upon us. And I'm extremely excited. It's the first time in my 23 years in education that I actually scheduled a vacation. Um, And this time, I'm just so excited and I'm ready to go. I'm already packed. It's well earned, no doubt. I'm excited for you. You do have a passport already, right? Oh, absolutely. I have a passport. I've got to do my travel authorization and, of course, take a COVID um, test three days before. But I am also vaccinated and thrilled. So is that is that's what's happening now? If you're traveling internationally, you want need to show some sort of like test results, even though you're vaccinated. 
You still need to show Yes, it. and it, it cannot be um, more than three days uh, old, the results, and you also have to have that travel authorization. Wow, so you got to get your brain swabbed like right before you catch a plane. Basically. I'm just telling you. Oh, right. <laughs> All right, well, good luck with that. Um, one of the stories I wanted to talk about today was something I didn't realize was happening so widespread. I say widespread. It was a little study that came out of um, Education Next. It was by Paul Thompson out of Oregon State University, and he's reporting on the four-day school week's that take place in the U.S. And I guess what I didn't realize was how many schools actually are trying a four-day school week. And apparently it's more than 1,500 schools. Um, and we're not talking about just during COVID. I mean, this is 15 years worth of data. And he looked at oh, 15, wow. 1,500 schools and um, they looked at uh, rural and northwest uh, Oregon. Uh, Idaho was in the mix, some, some out of Colorado, New Mexico, and South Dakota. But again, these are mostly in the rural areas. And most of the time that you see these schools go to this four-day school week, it has to do with ways to save money. Did you know this was happening? I don't think I ever really thought about it. What I did know was happening in many places um, was a 60% day, at least one day a week for professional development purposes. But literally a four-day week? No, I think uh, once this gets out, many people are going to be jealous. Well, I, they might be jealous, but I think by the time you hear the what this... Uh, gentleman, Mr. Thompson, found uh, is not necessarily the best news for making a case for the uh, four-day school week. So here's kind of what he learned. And um, again, this is again for budget crunch to avoid teacher layoffs. And um, also it was a way to like not have to increase class size as a way to save money. So they're like, so instead of maybe increasing um, class size, we'll instead go to this four-day week uh, as a way to save those dollars rather than hire some new teachers. So um, it looks like he found that a four-day schedule averages about 148 school days versus mm -hmm. about 175 to 180 for traditional schools. Um, he says that uh, four-day schools lengthen school hours um, in most cases to meet the state's minimum requirements. So they average about seven hours and 45 minutes a day versus, say, six hours and 54 minutes a day. And then um, he goes on to say that students typically get three to four hours less instruction time each week with the four-day school week, according to his research. And he found that about half the schools that he surveyed were fully closed on the fifth day, and about 30% of them offered like remedial or enrichment activities for students during that fifth day. Um, and then sometimes there would be some teacher office hours uh, or like a field trip might be scheduled on that fifth day. So what do you think so far? Um, I'm, I'm really interested on some details regarding the budget, because what's the purpose of it if it's not making a drastic change um, in the positive for their finances? But at the same time, I'm also interested um, in data about student growth, how those four days have impacted student achievement. OK, so good. You're asking all the right questions. So um, they found that four day weeks save one to two percent in operational cost or about three hundred fifty dollars per pupil. Um, they say what the difference of four day looks like in terms of, of learning is he found that having fewer hours of instruction resulted in math test scores dropping 5.9% of the standard deviation and reading scores dropping 4.2% of a standard deviation. He says that can be devastating depending on your school and your, your historical data. Exactly. And he says in a typical school, this translates to seven to 10 fewer students passing state tests. It, it makes me think about what we're we've experienced this school year, um, even with our you know common assessments, our diagnostic data all across the state, um, and I suspect across the country, but I don't have those numbers in front of me. We've seen a dip in numbers um, in regard to our student assessment, 
and probably attributed to attendance being, you know, a little wacky um, during a pandemic year. And then obviously for those schools that went hybrid, you, you know, attended about four days a week. And then those schools who are 100 percent virtual, I mean, you just can never replace the face to face interaction you have with a with a teacher. So if we are pushing to quickly get back to five days a week just after one year, I'm real interested to hear what you have to say. Um, with, you know, that many years of, of following it in a study. Yeah. And, and those drops in reading scores, as well as I think it was uh, math scores that I cited, um, those drops are the same as if you were to do cost, other cost-saving measures like increasing class size or cutting mm-hmm. student support programs. So I, I think he's saying like it's kind of an equivalent there's are some other foreseen things that are a problem when you're talking about the four day work week, which one that I know you know well, and that's that's a meal that that kids aren't getting one day a week, right? Yep, um, that's correct. And then it also more than just a meal though for some of them, the safety net, the comfort of being around people they know that care about them, um, their social interaction with their peers. That's that's a fair Access point. Access to other activities and resources they may not have being at home. And and he says uh, lack of supervision on the non-school day was associated with higher yes. rates of juvenile crime and risky behaviors, mm-hmm. including marijuana use, bullying, and sexual activity. Um, so yeah, I mean, it, it, I can't. It all seems like a. If I was to make a hypothesis, I could I could probably say, oh, I could see a lot of that happening, and to see that he's kind of looked at the data and come up with that, um, an interesting perspective there. Switching gears, I wanted to talk to you and kind of get your opinion on the idea of remote learning continuing to be an option. Let's just assume that things are about the same with COVID cases as we are right now. Like things are looking up, cases are going down. But there may still be some people out there who, A, either are still very reluctant uh, to put their kids back in the classroom, or B, they kind of like the system of the virtual schooling. It's working for their child, and it gives them more flexibility as a family. Um, Should districts continue to offer some form of virtual learning for the next school year? I'm pretty sure that I've said this to you before on a previous episode. Virtual learning is here to stay for many reasons. One, K-12, K-12 education was already behind in our digital efforts. Um, when you think about graduate school and other colleges and universities and what they were offering online, um, those options have been around for over 10 years. Um, secondly, yes, you will have some people who are still going to be a little leery, but not only that, there's a huge homeschool population that you can now tap into. They've always been homeschooled for, for whatever reasons, not tied to COVID, um, just other personal reasons. But now you can tap into that community, connect with those parents and offer some virtual learning options to take a little burden off of those parents who've been teaching the children themselves or purchasing some type of curriculum. Um, So I see it staying around. I, I will say this, not sure if you've seen it recently, there are a number of school districts in our area who have announced their return to traditional instruction for next fall without an option for virtual learning. Um, In the particular school district where I serve, we haven't made our announcement yet, but I'm sure that, you know, we're going to be sharing soon about the virtual options we're going to have and what the stipulations will be. It it won't be open to everyone. There'll be some specific criteria that they'll have to meet, but just taking it away, I think would be a disaster. I mean, when you can just go right around the corner to one of the local universities and sign up for online classes, it works for some people. 
So are, are you concerned, though, as you're going to be a director of curriculum and instruction? I mean, is it a burden to continue teaching in this way while simultaneously teaching in person? Well, that's the thing. We didn't do that. We considered it some type, a type of uh, per- child protection, uh, child privacy um, act. We, 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 we didn't teach like that. And I know a lot of schools in the North did it and it, it was very stressful for them. We had teachers that were designated during particular class periods to provide that virtual learning. And then maybe the next block, they had a face-to-face group. We never put children um, in that predicament to try and compete or learn at the same time with those face-to-face with a teacher. If I really, it's hard for me to give an opinion on that on that um, because I haven't been in that uh, scenario, but I do think um, just from what I've learned over this year, I don't agree with that as an option. I think that they should designate um, specific teachers and I'll give you an idea. There's one school district that I'm um, aware of that actually have selected a few people to serve as virtual teachers for the district. They are designated by grade level and content areas, you know, is set up very specifically and they are going to be housed in a different location to provide those services for those children that qualify, leaving the school buildings to traditional face-to-face environments. So yeah, you answered my question. What's the better way to do this, to have the teachers try to juggle both or a specific teacher? And it sounds like you're saying you feel like a specific teacher dedicated to virtual learning is is what's needed. Okay. Um, I just don't think that we've equipped our teachers to successfully do that. Not only that, we don't pay them enough. We don't value them enough. We don't provide them with the resources. Uh, I was reading a a survey from uh, Education Week, and they were pointing out that um, looks like a slight majority of teachers, principals, and district leaders in the survey, 56% say their school will offer at least some remote learning options for the next school year. And then they say um, it was a a substantial minority, just 39% said we're not going to offer any remote options at all. Also in that survey, it was estimated that 84% of teachers, principals, and district leaders say they are fully vaccinated now against COVID-19. So, uh, and then you and I were going to go back to to one thing that you shared about that 39%. Mm -hmm. We need to follow this now in a few months when it's time to, to open school back up and, and districts begin to analyze their enrollment numbers. I'm interested to see the impact it will make. Homeschooling has always been an option. And remember, now that we've gone through a pandemic year, there are way more options online for those homeschool families. Mm -hmm. So I'm interested to see how it's going to impact their enrollment, if their numbers are going to drop. And if they drop, guess what else drops? Funding, right? Their funding. Yeah. And that, that was my, you, you were like we'll a step ahead of me. I was curious. So, so you're predicting that these, this 39% that we don't know who they are exactly, but that they're going to see the numbers drop and they will backpedal and start to offer some sort of virtual option because it's tied some to funding. Is, option. Is, yeah. Okay. Wow. Well, time will tell. I'm glad we had this discussion. Christina, are you ready for today's bright idea? I am. Our two guests in today's Bright Idea segment are here to give us some real-world advice on dealing with conflict as a school leader. Robert Fearson is a professor at the New York Institute of Technology, and he's also a longtime public school superintendent. And Seth Weitzman is a longtime middle school principal, author, and now adjunct professor at Mercy College. Together, they wrote Constructive Conflict, which was recently published in Ed Leadership. Robert and Seth, welcome to Class Dismissed. Thank you. Thank you for having us. 
I appreciate you guys joining us because conflict as a leader is something I think at least in, in I'm not in an education background, I'm in a media background, but no one often is taught on how to deal with this. It's like you're taught to be an educator, but you're not necessarily taught how to manage conflict. Am I wrong about that? No, you're entirely right. Um, in fact, when uh, there have been some surveys done in Edweek and other, other places where uh, conflict is listed as one of the primary difficulties that leaders encountered, and research shows that uh, they don't get any training in it. So you come into these situations kind of blind and get blindsided. Everybody kind of knows conflict exists, but nobody really knows how to deal with it. Yeah, Nick, um, nice talking to you. Uh, you know, it, it, it first came to my attention because I would attend uh, professional conferences, and I noticed that during lunch or afterwards at dinner, um, when principals complained about their job, it always came down to conflict. So it's pervasive, and there were studies that show that as well, that um, it has tremendous costs, um, both costs uh, emotionally for principals, um, also uh, a great cost for schools as well. You just said something. You said uh, it costs, uh, it takes a toll emotionally on mm-hmm. on educators and principals and leaders. And and I, when I was in a leadership role, I felt very much the same way. I found myself sometimes consumed by dealing with the HR issues in my newsroom. Um, and yeah. I imagine there's some principals out there who who feel the same way. So uh, this is you know the million dollar question. But what can we do as leaders to try to compartmentalize that? I, I think the approach is multifaceted. I, the first thing and, and, and the premise of our work is that conflict is inevitable and uh, conflict should not be avoided or dealt with aggressively. So conflict really needs to be managed constructively. Uh, and when managed constructively, uh, it can produce great gains for the entire school. When that happens, uh, your emotional levels go down and the, the concern and the, the agitation and, that, and also that desire for a quick fix. I know uh, when I was a school leader, um, I felt tremendous pressure not only to have the answer to everything, but also to find it quickly. And I think that tr- that exerts a tremendous psychological pressure on oneself and uh, creates the opportunity to make mistakes. You, you, you jump at the wrong things. You, you get emotional. You, you, you say the wrong thing or you write the wrong thing. Uh, whereas if you take a step back and look at conflict from maybe 30,000 feet, you see this as an opportunity to engage with others in meaningful discussions because at the root of the conflict is something important. I think you guys break down in the article uh, that you recently wrote, I guess there's kind of like different types of common responses to dealing with conflict. Y'all mind sharing those with me? I think like one of them's avoiding, right? Yeah, we call them the three A's. Um, and the, the first two are quite typical, actually, if you look at research on conflict in schools and in all types of organizations. The first is um, the response to conflict is to go into attack mode. And um, we hear that reported as we talk to, uh, to teachers, uh, particularly on, on, in our roles as uh, professors and an adjunct professor. We hear reports about uh, principals who go into attack mode by threatening, using uh, institutional rewards and punishments, um, such as a good or bad uh uh, evaluation at the end of the year or in an observation report or even silly things um, like uh, parking spot close to the building. So the first uh, common approach that leaders take is to attack. 
The second is to is the opposite. It's to avoid. And I think that all of us are human beings, and uh, we're all tempted, right, to uh, dismiss conflict. If I can only put it aside, that's one way that uh, I think I can deal with it. Of course, the problem is that uh, it doesn't really go away. The feelings uh, fester, and uh, and and so it's an ineffective result. You know, we say in the article that you mentioned that we also link this to concern in our country about uh, institutional racism in schools and inequities as well. And, and we think that while conflict avoidance isn't the cause of it, it certainly allows it to persist, which is to say that uh, the, co- the courageous conversations that we suggest in our book haven't taken place um, around those compelling issues. So the third A, and the one that we recommend, is to address conflict. Uh, As Rob said before, it's not going away, um, but we think that there is a way to disagree with each other without discord and to use conflict in as a positive tool, actually, to kind of lay bare the issues that people have and to move them uh, together uh, using various techniques that we suggest in our book. Just if I'm looking at it on the surface, attacking conflict and addressing conflict, there's probably a, a fine line, at least on the surface. Um, and I guess you're here to help us determine, you know, what separates the two. I guess addressing it can be can be much more of a, a cordial and, and calculated manner, right? Yeah. And, and by attacking, we're really referring to an, an aggressive approach. Um, where one person, one side wins and the other side loses. It's, a, it's an us versus them gotcha. kind of approach. And that's actually uh, the anathema of what we suggest in our book. Okay, great. So, uh, and, and you say your book, um, tell us about that real quick. So we are uh, working with uh, Rowan, Rowan and Littlefield to uh, produce a book called, uh, uh, really devoted to this topic and really an extension of the article that was in educational leadership, which goes into not only the causes of conflict, but has a number of suggestions for addressing conflict constructively. And by that, not only addressing the conflict at hand, but by, uh, by using the techniques that we suggest really creating tremendous organizational capacity for growth in the long term because the the impact of resolving conflict constructively is that the organization as a whole, the school as a whole, becomes better at solving problems. It creates more trust among people where they understand that if they have difficulties, they're going to be able to work them out. They're going to be able to come to a satisfying conclusion and enables them to look forward in a positive way and have the courage, the, the, the school-wide courage, to address these these difficult issues. You know, in, in the terminology, these are kind of wicked problems. You know, wicked problem is something where the solution is not obvious, where traditional methods have failed, and which in which the there is tremendous uncertainty about how to proceed. Could you give me a quick example of a of a wicked problem? Well, in schools, there are many. Uh, there are hot button button issues in in many schools. In, in my experience, uh, curriculum changes are, are big ones. When we talk about, for example, the implementation of the Common Core, um, tremendous conflicts and and concerns developed about over how to implement and what they should be implemented, what it meant, what was required. Um, and, and it required some, some clear pathway to be able to figure out how to negotiate those differences. Um, at, at bottom, a lot of these conflicts are values conflicts. Uh, 
conflicts over how should we teach children? What do, what, they, what is the role of the teacher? How do we assess learning? Those are big issues that can't be addressed simply by saying, okay, we'll deal with it next week, or we'll just put it out to a committee and they'll come back and make a recommendation. You really need some more intensive work. Rob is referring to conflict uh, among the faculty, um, but also uh, ask any teacher, and they'll talk about conflict between parents and teachers. Um, over grades, over student discipline. Uh, you're assigning my child too much homework. You're not assigning my child in- enough. My child's bored. My child's failing. My child is not reaching her potential. So that relationship also is uh, is rife with conflict. And so let's dive into this a little bit. And I know we're going to be focusing on addressing the conflict. Um, you guys offer some tips on kind of how to I guess you would say depersonalize the conflict, correct? The, the really, the approach is twofold. One is for the leader himself or herself to really take stock of of his or her capabilities um, and their approach to conflict itself, a kind of self-reflective process, really understand how they, the emotionality of decision-making gets involved. You know, we all, we all bring biases to, to every, every situation. And, and for a large part, the, these biases work. Uh, they, they're mental shortcuts and, and they help us make decisions efficiently. But there are lots of ways in which these biases become, um, you know, kind of paralyzing or become negative in a lot of ways. So uh, it's important for leaders first to have the skills and disposition to take stock of themselves and recognize the things that turn them in, you know, create these hot button issues that, that make poor decision making. Uh, and the second part is to, is to work with others in the school, the, the entire school community, parents, teachers, everyone, students, to develop a better approach to conflict so that they can address these things in a, in a constructive fashion. We call it conflict agility. Uh, conflict agile schools are able to process these these kinds of difficult issues, uh, as, as Seth mentions, with, without getting crazy about it, without without getting to the point where where barriers are erected and the communication stops. Um, and conflict agile leaders are able to take a step back from situations and understand how to move people in in a direction that helps helps them share their beliefs become aware of the other side, uh, the other sides, and and really resolve resolve this situation constructively. I kind of divide our our techniques into two broad areas. The first is leadership behaviors. So we talk in our book um, about trust busters and trust boosters, for example. Mm -hmm. Um, We think that uh, principals need to honor errors that uh, people in the school community need to feel that they can trust each other and they can make mistakes on occasion. Um, what uh, phrase gives, uh, gives a, a teacher a better feeling than when a principal says, I have your back? Not playing the blame game um, is important, that we're not uh, pointing fingers at each other, but instead we're trying to solve community problems together. Um, we have some suggestions for breaking with the past because certainly people bring emotional baggage to the conflicts um, as they engage in them in school. So um, trust is key. That doesn't break any ground. I think anybody thinking about organizations realizes the um, instrumental role of trust. We also say that there's a leadership um, mindset too. Um, as Rob described, um, we have this phrase, the issue isn't the issue, Some, or, or another metaphor uh, would be peeling back the onion. That is uh, leaders kind of looking below the surface 
to see what is what issues are really in play. Um, we say uh, first things first is another technique that we suggest. Right. That is before a committee is ready to take on the issues that I want to put forward. First, we need to resolve the issues that other people have. For example, as you're proposing a new policy or maybe developing new curriculum. So we have all sorts of ideas. Um, they kind of start with individual leader behavior. Ultimately, it moves towards culture and changing the culture of the school so that um, problems are seen as community problems and we have the skills uh, that we can take them on together. I know you guys have kind of touched on this, but I know you kind of recommend to to avoid being defensive as yeah. a leader, right? Right. How can a leader pull that off? Well, we do suggest that there are several exercises. One, one of the one of the interesting ones that you could take is it, it uh, is called getting to the balcony. So this is uh, something that Heifetz and Linsky came up with, uh, and what it means is you have a different view when you're on the dance floor. You have a different view of when the commotion is all around you. If you can extract yourself temporary, at least temporarily and take a slightly larger view, a kind of more wide angle lens, you're able to de-emotionalize the situation because you're not really there. You're you're looking down at everything and trying to look at all the players and everything involved. So so getting to the balcony is, is a way to refresh yourself to take a different perspective. We also talk about, you know, really do a lot, doing a lot of self-reflection. And then we advise uh, two strategies, which we borrow from Rundy and Flanagan, which is slow down and cool down. Um, two steps you can take kind of cognitively to and emotionally to say, okay, I'm going to slow things down for a minute. You know, um, I'm going to take it easy for a moment, take a step back and cool off and recognize, get in touch with your own emotions. Be in that moment where you, where you recognize your own emotions. And recognize the biases and your emotionality of situation that you bring to it. We've said that a lot of these conflicts uh, that occur are really conflicts about values. As Seth talked about homework policy. Uh, the question is, you know, what what is what is homework? What value is it? Is it kind of creating uh, the the uh, f- effective kind of approach to task organization and organizational skills? Does it have some academic value? Is it for grading? Is there homeschool connections? And these are really significant issues that teachers and parents and administrators deal with all the time. So um, we we really advise that taking that step back and tr- and creating and recognizing that trust is important. We do also think that it creates a virtuous cycle. If you can do this a couple of times, it breeds success. Success breeds success. We also, you know, getting slightly farther afield in terms of long-term solutions, we really are advocates of design thinking and feel that design thinking provides a kind of structure which enables you to, to look at problems empathetically uh, and and from a distance at the same time and craft solutions as a group and that, that work for everyone. Can you give the leaders out there who may be struggling um, some hope that, that these can be skills that, that they can learn? Because, I mean, there's got to be so many leaders out there, and I'm sure you know these people who think, I didn't sign up for this. I didn't sign up to take on all these teachers' problems, all the faculty's problems, all the parents' problems, and they're just completely overwhelmed. And I know you guys have a lot of great tips there, but do you know people who have actually learned these skills and, and improved along the way? Yes. Um, you know, first, it's not easy. I'll tell you my own journey with um, with this. I mean, I, I was a middle school principal, um, assistant principal for part of the time, 
for a total of 30 years. And for probably 20 of them, I struggled with conflict. Um, One day I was in a bookstore, the Harvard Coop in Harvard Square, and uh, actually in the business section looking for a book on leadership. And I pulled off the shelves a book um, written by a uh, person by the name of Mark Gerzon. Uh, The title is Leading Through Conflict. And right there in the uh, bookstore, uh, in, in sitting, uh, standing between the shelves, I had this epiphany um, that there is something that we can do with conflict. It's not something that we have to live with because we all feel, as you just said, this is not what I signed up for, um, the job. It's not the way I imagine the job to be. Um, so I began instituting these practices in my school. Um, first, I felt uh, kind of very much alone. Um, but uh, one of the first uh, steps that I took was I spent 10 minutes at the beginning of most faculty meetings, just 10 minutes on an exercise that I called for the good of the community. If I had to do it over again, I might have called it community. Anyway, <laughs> um, it was an exercise in group problem solving Teachers could bring to the faculty uh, issues that they saw around the building with two provisos. Number one, they couldn't blame each other, no pointing fingers. And number two, we all had to be part of the solution. No parochial issues, no administrators, you solve this problem for us. So it started there with just 10 minutes at the beginning of faculty meetings. Teachers would stand up, for example, this is middle school, right? Um, So in the springtime, they talk about uh, what we call spring has sprung behavior in the hallways. And together, we try to figure out how to solve the problem. It started there. We found more and more opportunities for group problem solving. I felt better and better about it. And what was really interesting to me was as I poked into other meetings around the building, for example, parent-teacher conferences, team meetings among teachers themselves, I would start to hear the language of of conflict agility uh, taken on by teachers. They would begin to use that language themselves. And that's when I knew that we were making progress. Mm -hmm. One more uh, kind of finish to the uh, story Uh, There was a point that we um, introduced uh, capstone projects in our building as a way to to evaluate students and for students to demonstrate their learning at the end of middle school. And I know that years before, uh, with such a a fundamental uh, shift in our outlook, it would have brought tremendous staff resistance. But as a result of the steps that we had taken with conflict agility, we were able to move through that quickly and in a very healthy and productive manner. So um, it really works. If if I could just uh, add a little piece to this. Um, Seth talked about a mindset before, and I think that's very important. I think uh, and certainly as a superintendent, uh, you know, I certainly experienced it. We go back to this notion that uh, having a conflict means failure. It means you've done something wrong. It means there's something wrong with the organization, with the schools. There's, there's, there's something amiss. Otherwise, you wouldn't have this. So 
the mindset really has to change to conflict is inevitable and conflict is part of human interaction. There, there's no human interactions over time that don't have some element of conflict in them. And things don't always fit neatly into a compartment. We also believe, we all believe that, you know, if, if we should resolve problems from September to May or September to June or whatever the school year runs. Uh, school problems don't often fit into that category. Um, they can take longer. So, you know, as a school leader, one of the things we try to do is we try to give the people the license that we now give to kids. You know, in, in schools, we've been talking a lot about the maker movement and its, its impact on students and the failing forward and freedom to fail. Um, we need to extend that same quality to ourselves. We need to be able to say to ourselves, uh, situations are difficult. They, don't often, they often can't get pigeonholed by a typical solution or what's been done in the past. They take time and they take care and they take understanding. Uh, let's give ourselves the permission to move forward, make mistakes perhaps, but also recognize that we can make mistakes, evolve from them, learn from them and move forward again. Let me ask you this, because I'm guessing there's probably someone listening in this boat, and that is the the position of, you know, they became a school leader, they're learning on the job, they're one, two, three years into this, they know they could do better, they know they could maybe have that turning point that like Seth was describing, but they feel like they might need to reset and go to a different school to, and start from scratch. I mean, would you recommend that, like if a, if a, a principal or needs to kind of reset to just go to a different school and, and or maybe ask for a transfer? Or do you think that a principal can turn it around if they had a be- rough first few years? Well, I think we, we I, th- I don't want to speak for Seth, but I certainly feel that we believe very much in the growth mindset. Um, it, we talk about that in, in our forthcoming book, but we, we do believe in the growth mindset, that, that your, your abilities are not fixed. Um, that you can evolve, change, grow, and learn from your experience. And we think that that's, that's what makes a really good leader. Um, so, I mean, I can't speak to individual situations, but certainly we believe that change is possible and people can evolve. I think personally in my life, I, when I was a, a young school, you know, just starting out as a school leader, uh, I made a ton of mistakes. Um, you know, looking back now, I, I can think of many errors in judgment, things I shouldn't have said, things I should have said, uh, times I should have acted, times I should not have acted. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but the ability, the, the, the difference there is to reflect on those. And part of developing trust with your faculty and your school community at large, the parents and students and everybody you work with, is the ability to make, to admit those mistakes. The ability to say, hey, you know what? we can do better at this. It sets a tremendous positive role model example Mm -hmm. for the entire school. When the school leader says, you know what, looking back at this, we could have done better and here's how we're going to do it. Yeah. I would think you'd probably uh, gain a lot of respect by just being, you know, have the strength to do that in front of a a group of of teachers. A lot of this comes down to being an honest and authentic person, right? Um, I mean, that, that, that principle that you described before uh, really exists. Um, as we were researching for a book, um, we came upon data from the National Council for Education Statistics that found that 16% of principals say the stress of the job is just not worth it. That's 16%. When they go ba- went back and, uh, and checked on those principals a year later, they found that 20% of that group, just as you described, had left their positions, either mm. left for another school or left uh, the principalship entirely. Um, but we do believe that there is, is hope and we're confident in the methods that we suggest because we've seen them work. 
Well, I love what you guys are doing. I think it's really important because I don't know if, if everybody realizes the stress that a lot of these school leaders are under. And uh, I'm glad you guys are offering them some tools. When can people look forward to the uh, the book and where can they find it? Uh, the book is going to be published by Roman Littlefield. Um, we expect it to be out sometime in the middle uh, of the next academic year. So sometime maybe late fall, early winter. Excellent. And uh, just keep up with us. Once it comes out, maybe we'll have to have you back on the show. Well, that would be delighted. All right. All right. Uh, Rob and Seth, are you ready for our pop quiz? All set. I guess All right. so. <laughs> First question. If students could only go to school for one subject, which subject should it be? I'm going to say English. I'm sorry I was an English teacher. <laughs> uh, I'm going to answer the question by giving you an, a, a different uh, perspective. Um, I don't like the artificial subject, subject barriers, so I would look more of a humanities kind of approach. What are we not teaching in school that we should be teaching? Well, I mentioned before, um, the, the um, I, I think inquiry skills um, uh, reflected in the capstone projects that I mentioned before. Um, I, I think that should be the emphasis on schools. So those kind of lifelong learning skills. I, I would go along with that, sure. <laughs> what does every child deserve? Love and, uh, and respect. Suppose everybody answers. I hope everybody answers. Yeah, and I would I, I would add to that a caring adult um, who is truly concerned with their growth and development. What's the biggest challenge for today's educators? Uh, well, I, you know, I'm going to bring it back to uh, to our work with conflict because uh, we do think that it's no coincidence that we're concerned about conflict in schools because, of course, if whatever social media you use whatever newspaper or news media you pay attention to, of course, it's rife in our country as well. And, and we think that's, uh, that's not a coincidence. And I, I think, too, that we solve things on a piecemeal basis. Uh, I think we look at individual issues kind of on an ad hoc basis, and we don't see that they're all connected so that uh, it becomes we put out a fire here, we put out a fire there. Uh, we don't really look for a coherent strategy to, um, you know, to set the road to school improvement, the road to school improvement be a steady one uh, rather than one that takes all kinds of detours and hits potholes all the time. What's the best gift to give an educator? Um, time. <laughs> Every educator I know is so harried and so and so uh, pushed in so many directions all the time. Uh, when you ask staff what do they what do they want, we want more time. We want more time to, to work on our, our work. We want more time to collaborate. We want more time to think about and reflect. We want more time to really enjoy work our, our work with students and parents. Yeah, I would specify time for professional development. I mean, there's no good time um, now for professional development, um, but uh, time during the school day to collaborate to me would be the greatest gift. Which teacher changed your life? Oh, I had, I had a bunch. Um, the first one that comes to mind is an English teacher I had in, in high school who really opened my eyes to a tremendous amount of different kinds of literature uh, and really talked about why authors wrote things. You know, it never occurred to me that there was actually a purpose behind why people wrote and did things, that they actually just kind of did them. I, ne I never really thought really about the motives, but understanding the deeper insights and deeper values and, and the connection that the author was trying to establish with the reader made it really a much more meaningful process. And uh, I, I think really set my whole academic career in a different direction. I'm going to say... Um 
Rodney Sharatsky was his name. He was uh, my journalism teacher uh, in high school in 11th or 12th grade. And uh, this is going to sound a little odd, but, uh, you know, he, he knew me better than I knew myself. Um, he was just a very caring, very nurturing man. Um, and we learned a lot about journalism lessons that I still think of when I open a newspaper today. But most of all, I remember just uh, sitting across a desk and, and talking to him. Good stuff. And uh, last question. It's an easy one. Pen or pencil? <laughs> well, I got to answer. I got to tell you, my handwriting is so atrocious that neither <laughs> one works for me. I am. Uh, I am. Uh, the, the keyboard was the greatest invention for me ever because uh, people I'd write things and people would go, I think he wrote this or I think he wrote that. So um, if I had to choose, I would take pen because I'm just always using a pen, but uh, give me a keyboard. I, I know after everything we just said about uh, leadership that I should say pencil, but I'm going to say pen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, Robert, I feel your pain. Often, if I take notes by hand, I cannot read my own notes, and that's when you know your handwriting's bad. Um, so well, for me, it's pl- it, for me, it's plausible deniability. If somebody says, "Well, you wrote this," I said, "No, that's not what I wrote at all." <laughs> <laughs> well, again, you guys are listening to uh, Robert Fearson and Seth Weitzman. Uh, we appreciate you guys talking to us today about constructive conflict, and we look forward to the book. I'm serious when it comes out. Uh, let me know, and maybe we'll have you back on the show. Okay, terrific. Well, thank you for having us. That's going to do it for this episode of Class Dismissed. If you want to send us an idea or comment, remember you can always email us at info at classdismissedpodcast.com or tweet us at classdismiss. We're here to support educators, but we need your support as well. So please subscribe to the show. And we'd also appreciate it if you could leave us a five-star review on iTunes. On behalf of all the good people working at School Status and Christina, representing all those educators out there, thank you for listening. I'm Nick Ortigo, and I'll talk with you next week. Class dismissed. <laughs>